0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is important to speak to Jason Furman, not only a former chairman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, but somebody who I think, what'd you do? Did you take like three days off between (laughs) your public service and thinking about policy and writing about policy?
1: I think it was about two, but yeah.
0: but you went right back into it like nobody I've ever seen. And in that, there's so much to write about, and we just have to go right away to your important essay in the Washington Post with Alan Kruger, who joins us every jobs day, Chair Yellen as well signing this essay that we need to look at the budget now and not just entitlements. What do, does a more Republican tilt? What do they get wrong when they say we just got to solve entitlements?
1: Let's just look at the deficit, Tom. This year, 2018, the IMF just came out with a report yesterday. The United States is the highest as a share of GDP deficit of any of the advanced economies. Number two is Italy. They're 1.9% of GDP better than us, and Spain is number three. Look out ahead five years. The debt is rising as a share of the economy in the United States. In every other country that has a debt, it is falling as a share of GDP. Those two facts I just said have nothing to do with entitlements and have a lot to do with the fact that we just embarked on – a virtually unprecedented fiscal experiment, which is a large dose of stimulus, mostly through tax cuts, at a time when the economy is at or near full employment.
0: Some economists criticize President Obama for, okay, raising taxes, but going too far. (coughs) Excuse me, is there a middle ground, a middle ground to come back from tax cuts towards more rational, here's a dangerous word, more fair tax increases?
1: Uh, You know, you look at the Bull Simpson Fiscal Commission, they called for revenue to be 21% of GDP. This year, we're less than 17% of GDP. You could sit me down with any Republican economist and the two of us could come up together with a tax plan that would raise revenue and be more efficient and have lower effective marginal tax rates than our current tax system does. Mm -hmm. So I think we could have a more pro-growth tax system. You know, I wouldn't go back to the tax code we had a year ago or two years ago. I'd move forward, but I'd reform it in a way that gave more predictability, more certainty, lower effective rates, and more revenue.
2: Jason Furman, one of the uh, highlights of this earnings season so far has been earnings from banks. They talk about how they're making more money because of changes to the tax code. Uh, We're also getting word that Procter & Gamble reporting quarterly results, a dollar a share analyst estimates was for 98 cents a share. They boosted their core EPS estimates for the remainder of the year. Also, a lot of that is to do with taxes. Is there any evidence that the Reduction in taxes leads to sustained economic growth?
1: Look, it's definitely going to lead to faster growth this year. I have, I, I'm not debate that proposition no, no, I des- at all. I understand. Sustained, right. though. Sustained, right.
2: rather right. than just right. one quarter so, and then quarter to quarter measurements.
1: So I think the way you want to look at the sustained growth is say, you know, what investment project was not profitable in the tax system before that would be profitable at the tax system now. I think there are some of them so I think it will lead to some increase in investment, some increase in growth. When I did my own study of this that added up to less than one tenth of 1% of GDP year in growth. Um, Ernst and Young, CBO, others have found about the same. So I think there's yeah a little bit extra investment um, you'll get out of this but not not a whole lot and in part that's because effective tax rates were already a lot lower than the headline tax rates even before this reform passed.
2: One of the highlights of the uh, tax reform bill was supposedly all the money that's going to be reinvested, as you just indicated, into projects, which I imagine have to be vetted by boards of directors and top executives to see whether they are going to pay the kinds of returns that warrant those investments, and yet what we've heard is companies are investing in stock buybacks. Is that necessarily good for the economy? I don't have any
1: problem with stock buybacks. I mean you get a lot of extra cash. If you don't have profitable investment projects, you should give that money back to your shareholders. And investment is not determined by cash flow. There was a lot of cash for any company that wanted to make an investment one, two, three years ago. What we have a shortage of is profitable opportunities. The tax reform will expand the profitable opportunities a little bit but not a whole lot.
0: What do you say about Social Security? Chairman Greenspan yesterday agrees with you that it is about budget responsibility. And yeah, I guess we get to entitlements. And I think Chairman Greenspan would go to you on the value of these commissions and getting the political discourse over to fiscal responsibility. Social Security, by a lot of analysis, has challenges 13 years out. And yet you and others say it's easily solvable. A lot of our listeners don't understand that. How is the Social Security mess Easily solvable.
1: There's a well-understood menu of options for Social Security. Some of them are on the spending side. Some of them are on the revenue side. You can just look down that menu and pick a set of options that add up to the total problem. I I
0: was thrown out of clubs that Pim Fox is allowed to attend (laughs) because I did a chart, Jason, 10 years ago, which extrapolated the income level of the top people and what the social security limit was, 123,000, 130,000. And I interpolated with some squishy math that was not Furman like, that <laughs> you'd ought to run up to 150 or 160,000. The amount of hate mail I got off that chart was remarkable. Remarkable.
1: That's one of the options. You know, there's another option you can, I mean, I, I'll, I'll get myself run out of a lot of clubs with this option. You can broaden the tax base to include employer sponsored. Health insurance payments that would bring more revenue in, um, expand the base, and do it in an economically efficient way. But no one would like that idea. So. In
0: the time we've got left with you this morning, uh, Doctor Furman, I want you to once and for all talk about the glide pass. Or Zag Furman, the rest of you, Matthew guys, talk about glide pass. Nobody listens. Believes it'll be smooth. Give us the confidence that we have smooth, smooth glide pass to the three, the five, the 10-year solutions that we face?
1: On the fiscal side, I I have no confidence whatsoever right now. I don't see a forcing event unless trillion-dollar deficits really wake people up and get attention in the way that um, we haven't seen to date. But right now on the fiscal side, I don't see it. Look, but I do think our economy is a big resilient economy. I think we have a lot of ability to borrow in global capital markets. I'm not uh, foreseeing and warning of any sort of fiscal catastrophe. I don't think that's what we'll see. I think what we'll see is a fiscal chipping away at our prosperity. We'll be poorer, but there won't be one dramatic event.
0: Uh, Jason Furman, a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisers, of course, writing for Peterson, among others, and teaching at his Harvard as well. Very beneficial today. With us now is an important international economist. Nathan Sheets is with PGM for years writing at Citigroup and is acclaimed for writing thoughtful six- and seven-page dense essays on the dynamics of the international economy. Dr. Sheets, wonderful to have you with us. It's an open question, what is the number one theme you would write about for May of 2018? Well, uh, Tom, thank you. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be with you.
3: Uh, I think the number one theme at this stage is the surprisingly positive, constructive performance of the global economy. Over the last few years, we've criticized the global expansion as being the new mediocre. But over the last few quarters, we've realized that maybe there was a silver lining to that. And that is that imbalances and vulnerabilities you would have expected to have emerged – Uh, at this point in the cycle, simply aren't there. And it seems like this thing's got a fair amount uh, of momentum for
0: the next couple of years. The momentum in the glide path that matters to every single listener coast to coast is we've got to boost exports. 90% of the discourse is on imports, tariffs or that. You know, the glib, I mean, Pim Fox and I will sit over a beverage of our choice in New York and say, we need to be a big Switzerland. Well, baloney to that. What's the prescription to boost exports other than dollar dynamics?
3: Uh, This is a profound point, Tom. I couldn't agree with you more. The win-win solution for the global economy is for all of us to export more. If we focus on trade balances uh, that pushes us to the lose-lose solution, where we all import less. And uh, I think that uh, I think that increasing imports means more multilateralism, more plurilateralism. It means TPPs and Naftas, but it also means uh, countries uh, uh, playing by the rules of the game. And from that perspective, I do agree with this administration that China's got some work to do to open up its economy, open up its business environment to foreign firms to allow, to allow more exports.
2: Uh, Nathan Sheets, uh, you served previously as the Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. If around the world, if internationally, the economy is doing as well as you describe, why are people not dancing in the streets? They're protesting in the streets, and they want to break up as many trade agreements as they have established. Witness Brexit. Witness what's going on with NAFTA, TPP, and just about every political leader is under threat.
3: That that is a, a extremely important question. And I think that part of it goes back to the fact that the last decade, where we are now, it seems to me is a pretty good place. But the last decade has been rough. And people remember uh, the financial crisis. They remember – Uh, the uh, uncertainties about employment. Now, maybe we're moving to a better place where the global economy is going to perform in a more effective uh, uh, way. And if so, uh, I would hope, I can't be absolutely confident, but I would hope that some of these populist pressures that we're seeing in the United States and elsewhere uh, will start to abate. But I very much agree with you that there's a very concerning uh, a political dynamic that we're seeing globally that runs in an opposite direction and may ultimately be, if it doesn't abate, may ultimately undercut some of the strong macro
2: performance that we're seeing. All right. But in that context, uh I'm sure you're aware of the IMF report about the United States and our jet-to-DDP trajectory, and, you know, that reminds me of that quote, the most dangerous thing in the world is what, a second lieutenant with a map and a compass. I mean, is this a map and a compass kind of situation, except they can't read it? We have, in the United States... We have in the
3: United States uh, serious challenges with our fiscal position. The IMF is is absolutely right. Now, I don't expect that that's going to slow the economy over the next uh, couple of years. But over a long horizon, if we don't address it, I think we're going to be well, moving into a world with higher uh, U.S. interest rates and more macroeconomic it, uncertainty.
0: It, it, Dr. Sheets, have you modeled deficit to GDP? I mean, Jim bond guys Greg Peters and the crew, they really care about that kind of metric. Can you get out to 6% like Douglas Holtz-Eakin does? There are uh, two contrasting views on
3: this. So one view, uh, there's a a body of work, let's call it Reinhardt Rogoff, that once debt gets high, it uh, meaningfully slows the economy. The other side of that is there are a lot of countries out there that are able to carry uh, high levels of debt with relatively low interest yeah, we rates. we call that Italy. I, think it yeah. will, uh, I think it will be a, a negative effect on growth going yeah. forward. I don't know how big.
0: Nathan Sheets, thank you so much for uh, helping us continue this coverage from the meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. It's always good to speak with Mark Heffley of UBS, but particularly with the undercurrents of IMF analysis of where we stand. Mark, it is the Union Bank of Switzerland, which means a certain permanent and cultural austerity. We're not seeing that from guns and butter Washington. Do you care from an international basis about a trillion dollar U.S. deficit?
4: Well, I think it's a great question, and our investors around the world absolutely care about this, and I think it, they do raise some questions about what happens to the dollar in these scenarios, and, that, and we think that uh, the fiscal deficit as well as the current account deficit can contribute to a bit more dollar weakness this year.
2: Mark, uh, let me put it to you. Dollar weakness this year, uh, is it also because we have a funding crisis when it comes to dollars? If companies repatriate all of that cash that's overseas, that pulls money out of Europe, and that means you got to go find more dollars. Isn't that going to be a, sort of a, a confrontation between those that want dollars and the dollars that are available?
4: Well, I think that uh, you know the repatriation issue is an interesting one. And it highlights the importance of investment in the United States as a necessity to support the dollar, given the current account deficits. I think a lot of the money that sits overseas may already be in dollars, and so there's not necessarily a scramble to get, to get those dollars, uh, you know, converted.
2: So you don't see any uh, funding issue having to do with LIBOR rates?
4: Well, I think I think that uh, where where LIBOR plays such an important role is in the you know so many things are are tied to it, so many loans, right, from mortgages or, or corporate loans and things, and therefore, as you see the LIBOR rise, and some, you know some of it perhaps for uh, legitimate growth reasons or concerns about it, in inflation that that can actually have a slowing effect on on the U.S. economy. So that that certainly plays into the mix.
0: What's well, interesting here, Mark, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, what we like to do, folks, is with the advantage of so many bright guests and so many good conversations, if somebody brings up a telling point, we like to get a second, third, and fourth opinion through the morning on it. We're going to do that right now with Mark Halfley of UBS. William Lee, first-rate economist now at the Milken Institute, makes very clear – that a weaker dollar does the feds work for them are we developing a tighter u.s monetary policy a more restrictive policy by a weaker dollar in the last year
4: well i think i think the the weaker dollar certainly uh helps helps on a lot of fronts in the sense that a weaker dollar can make u.s uh exports more attractive it can help stimulate and it can help rebalance some of the, these imbalances that, that we're facing, you know, like, like the current account deficit. So, it, you know, it's, uh, we, we know the strong dollar is a policy, and then we know some of the comments that have come out of the Treasury administration and otherwise. But on the other hand, you know, nobody c- the, the dollar is controlled by the market, so it's more of a, a symptom of the underlying economics than kind of the, the, a, a force that can be yeah. pushed on.
0: Let's go the other way. We have a weak dollar of any form or flavor. We know it's not everybody in the pool. Which nation, which region, which blocks, which kind of nations will see harmful dollar appreciation as we weaken the greenback?
4: Well, you know, I think uh, the concerns have been around what happens in the emerging markets. And uh, as the dollar Moves and so far, the emerging markets have has held up well as the dollar weakened, and and it's one of the re- and we think that's due in part to this kind of, you know, the story of the synchronized global growth. So, particularly this year, where we don't we don't see the dollar weakening to the extent it 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 did last year, we think right. that uh, you know we think actually the emerging market story can can remain relatively yeah. positive. I think. The the issues that you raise around what is going on with U.S. fiscal policy, what is going on, uh, you know, how that will roll through to the dollar, they're they're very political issues, and they do, at the margins, influence outside investors uh, who are thinking about whether they invest in the United States, move capital into dollars and then into the United States, versus taking it to other parts of the world.
0: Mark, um, I, I want to switch gears here because, Pim, it's time for a UBS victory lap. And, and Mark, you, you're, Jeff, you and your team in London was lights out brilliant during the panic over weaker pound sterling of saying maybe not. And you did one of those things major banks rarely do, which is you really went against consensus. Review that decision and now that we have a much stronger pound sterling, can you advocate that it will ever strengthen?
4: Well, Tom, thank you so much for that. Look, I think um, this is a, the, 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 the situation what we saw in the U.K. was that there was you know, massive pessimism uh, and, uh, around Brexit and, and the fall in the pound. Uh, that accompanied that. And we saw massive positioning by hedge funds and others as part of our, uh, you know, we have such a tremendous look into client accounts, but also as the largest wealth manager in the world, we talked to partners around the world, what other funds are doing. So we saw all that pessimism. And at the same time, I think what, what we've seen, and, and this bears out on, on the future, is we're in a lull now where they're negotiating. There's no decisions now on Brexit for for a little while. And therefore, it you know, markets can only focus on so many things at once. And so we yeah. thought that as that, as that political uh, noise, kind of, there's going to be political noise, but no decisions made, we thought that the pound could rebound. And now as the, as the UK economy is doing well, and perhaps, um, you know, the central bank there uh, raises rates a little bit, so that's where we saw things going well. However, there is going to be a bill to pay eventually, Around Brexit, uh, you know, say not quite a year from now, right. as, as those events begin to take center stage again. Well,
0: Mark Halfley, thank you so much. He is with UBS. this this morning at these spring meetings of the imf and the world bank is the right guest william lee is at the milken institute for years at Citigroup and of course his service to the international monetary fund dr lee you have a great observation which i pointed out a couple days ago but you take it further as you always do and that is a weak dollar has consequences for Chairman Powell. I want you to walk through this oddity of a legitimate currency move changes Fed behavior. Give us a, a
5: clinic on this. You know, Tom, when, when I was at the IMF many generations ago, it was a cottage industry to, to develop what's called the mantra Conditions Index, the equivalence between exchange rate right. changes and interest this, rate We changes. call this going rogue off, I believe <laughs> is, is what we call it. Well, one of the things that, that we noted um, was that the dollar has depreciated since the uh, beginning of, um, of last year by about Thirteen percent. Now, using a U.S. monetary conditions index, which is like ten to one or five to one, that's equivalent to a one to almost two percentage points of interest rate easing. So essentially, we've offset all of the tightening that the Fed has done this year and last year. So, so when the when the markets are so worried about. Excessive Fed tightening they have to remember we are starting from even a lower base And the distinction here is if we have three or four rate hikes modeled
0: in the dollar in the international markets Whether weak dollar or strong yuan strong euro strong yen through 107 105 is doing
5: the work for them Where they would only do one or two rate hikes exactly And so so one of the things that the markets are getting ahead of themselves about is this excessive tightening choking off the uh, choking off the recovery and the yield curve flattening and the house policy inverting. Let's remember, the inversion is a nice correlation with recessions. It's a great right. correlation, but it's not causation. And when you think about it, why does the inverted yield curve mean recession? It's because the Fed is tightening like crazy because they think inflation is getting out of hand. Right but now, it, we have no sign inflation Bill, is getting But so we out of have hand. a
3: chart, right? But, it, but every time in the past, for the last, I think, 30 years, mm-hmm. it inverted, inversion means recession. Yes. If this time it's different, then you ne- it means that actually we don't have any money. Left.
5: Well, actually, the model, we have to remember how to use the model appropriately. It inverted because the Fed was aggressively tightening to get rid of inflation running away. Right now, the Fed is not trying to get rid of inflation that's running away because it hardly has any inflation.
3: Okay, that's the chart. We will push it on social media. What if the markets don't know how to live without that life support?
5: And, and so the markets are now betting, I think, the wrong way, which is the, the the question you asked me before about the recession. Everyone is concerned about the possibility of recession because we're only 43 basis points away from an inversion, right? right? But that inversion does not signal the Fed aggressively tightening. You talk to anybody in the FOMC right now, they're saying we're taking it easy because we don't see inflation. What, what is the discourse? Do you want to get in here? Francine's doing her thing that she know, does with Italian, her on Instagram right?
3: story, like,
0: which is time. <laughs> Shut up. I want to ask
3: okay. a further question. What is aggressive tightening. If you have yeah. seven <clears throat> interest rate hikes in the next 18 months, is that aggressive?
5: It, it, aggressive means you get above neutral. You get t- tightening. And so far, the, the, we are still accommodative. And we're trying to get to neutral. So aggressive tightening okay. is passing neutral and getting... How
0: does the Fed get out of this box? They're saying three, four rate increases. Everybody agrees. They're talking too much. Is it like a Fed speech where Chairman Powell drops a bomb? I mean, Bullard's comments on curve flattening alone were interesting. But it, do we look, listen for chairman powell in his speech to
5: say something begins his dialogue remember what he's what chairman Powell said at the first press conference i'm worried about this rate increase everything else in the future i don't i don't know anything about so essentially he's he's denying forward guidance right he, powell he's has, data dependent powell has shut down forward guidance but, because okay, it's not credible
0: well said but the critical point here dr lee is if i am data dependent part of that data is the litmus paper of the
5: dollar system absolutely and, and you, the, the dollar means that the, when you look at monetary conditions, you have to coordinate both the financial markets, the exchange rate, and interest rates.
3: But, but is there a system that you could do a bit of both? So forward guidance with data dependency. Because if you only do data dependency, you're, you're chasing the economy instead of guiding it.
5: That's called Arthur Byrds. <laughs> ideally, they would have done that, but they blew it, and they blew it because the Fed is no longer credible. When they said we're going to increase by X amount, they this, never did. This is quickly here. This is important. You're saying. Chair Yellen blew it. Chair Yellen and Bernanke both blew it because they were they got ahead of themselves. They were too confident in their forecasts. Powell is the guy who says, "I'm not an economist. All I know is I'm only concerned about this increase, and all future ones are going to be dependent upon where the data and the forecasts are going." All right, Full Bill. Stop. Thank you so much, Billy. There of the Milken
4: Institute.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast